0: We are now in the seventh week of our series in Philippians. And this week, we get a look at one of the most intimate passages about Paul's faith. Uh, Paul starts talking about his personal encounter with Christ. And and out of all the writings of Paul, this is one of the rarest times that he he steps back and he talks about how Christ intersected with his life. I had a professor... uh, when I was in seminary, his name is Bob Tuttle, a very charismatic individual. And, and Bob went, you know, 50 years after the fact, when describing his faith, he'd still get really excited. and be like, children, you know, when I went to, to bed as an unbeliever, it was like I went to bed in black and white. But then I found Jesus, and in the morning I woke up in his technicolor. Woo! You know, like just would lose his mind after 50 years because faith in Jesus, it changes everything. And that's what Paul gets at this morning. Faith in Jesus, it changes everything. Nothing can be the same. And, and, and normally each Sunday we, we, we look at, you know, three points that we can find out of this. And, and there's just one big idea this morning, and this is it. We can count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, We're going to walk through the passage, beginning with verses 1 and 2. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Since chapter 1, we've been hashing out what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And it's been very encouraging. It's a a beautiful picture. And the culmination of that is not a developed theology alone, but its embodiment in people. It's, It's lives transformed. It's Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it's drawing near to people in our lives who make the gospel both desirable and plausible. Because when we step towards people who are living lives worthy of the gospel... In a very real sense, we are taking a step towards Christ, who dwells within them, who changes them and transforms them. But now Paul says, look out. Because you can draw near to some people uh, that in some sense will draw you away from Christ. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. And honestly, this rubs against our sensitivity. Why is Paul being so harsh, and and who is Paul talking about? Uh, By and large, scholars agree he's most likely talking about the Judaizers, and I think there's a good case for this. Uh, Now, we don't know for certain if the Judaizers were present in Philippi or that Paul was expecting that they might pass through Philippi, uh, but what we do know through the New Testament and Galatians in particular is that there was a group of Jewish missionaries uh, that came to believe in Jesus, uh, but they would follow Paul on his missionary adventures. So Paul would go into a Gentile region, non-Jews, and teach them about being saved through Jesus, that um, through Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, through grace alone, you could be reconciled to God exactly as you are, as a Gentile. But then this group of Jewish Christians would come in, after and say, it's not enough simply to have your faith in Christ. You must complete your faith by being circumcised, which was a designating mark of being a Jew. In other words, it's not enough to be a Gentile. Uh, You must become a Jew because it's the Jews who are the people of God. You see, the Judaizers, they misunderstood their role as the Jewish nation. They thought their election uh, was really about ethnicity. But really, their election was for the fact that God had chosen them to bring about the Messiah into the world. And so Paul, he serves some harsh words to this group of people because they fundamentally misunderstand what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because it's through Christ that the whole world can come into the people of God now. Yes, Israel was elect, but for the sake of the nations, not for their own sake. And he says, look out for the dog. And This sounds really harsh, to talk of his own people this way. Uh, but Paul knew, as a Jew, that this was insider language. The, the Jewish nation at that time, when they said dogs, they meant all of those outside of Judaism. Essentially the Gentiles. Watch out for the dogs, the Jews would say. And now Paul turns this term towards them. And in essence, he's saying to the church of Philippi, watch out For the people who think they're on the inside, but they're really on the outside. Look out for the people who teach a message in the name of Jesus, but completely miss what Jesus accomplished. Look out for people who add to the gospel. For people who say, yes, faith in Christ, but. And this, I think, is still a very real threat in our society today. Now, fortunately for all the guys here, we don't have a group of Judaizers coming to St. Peter's and saying, you know, you have to be circumcised to complete your faith in Christ. Like, this is not actively happening, to my knowledge. But, we can breathe a sigh of relief, but we are also bombarded with different messages, aren't we? People who say, yes, 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 follow Jesus, but you can't trust the authority of the Scriptures. They're wrong on so many issues, uh, so we only follow the ideas that we, we like. Yes, yes, let's follow Jesus, but you can't make any universal claims to truth because all religions are equally valid. Yes, Jesus, but keep them to yourself. You can have a private faith, but not a public faith in our society. You see, whether it's Uh, Christianity devoid of the scriptures, universalism, or submitting to secular ideology. We encounter people who say, yes, Jesus, but. Paul says, look out for these people. Look out for people who come to you in the name of Jesus, but ultimately will lead you away from him. Because whether it's malicious intent or not, they fundamentally misunderstand the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is, yes, Jesus. No buts. So Paul says in verse 3, For we are the real circumcision. You You know, any Jewish man or woman reading that, this just blew their minds. For we are the real circumcision. Paul consistently teaches in his letters that circumcision was never about the male genitalia. It was always supposed to be a sign, a sign that God would one day circumcise the heart. This was a promise that God made to his people. And Paul says, and now the people of God are no longer identified by external circumcision, but by those who worship by the Spirit of God. You see, human hands can circumcise a penis, but only the Spirit of God can circumcise the heart. And these people with circumcised hearts, Paul says, uh, they will be identifiable because they glory in Christ Jesus. A heart changed by the Holy Spirit will glory in Christ Jesus. This can be translated, uh, will boast in Christ Jesus. Those who are the real people of God, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, have their hearts transformed by God, and their one boast will be Jesus Christ, which is why Paul goes on to say, and they will put no confidence in the flesh. Their boast will be in Christ Jesus, and they will put no confidence in the flesh. Flesh, uh, it's sarx in the Greek. It's it's a tricky word to translate. It can mean our bodies, you know, like our our flesh. Uh, It can can be our our sinful proclivities, uh, our sinful nature at how we uh, continually act in ways that are contrary to the ways of God. And flesh, it can also refer to the the world, and it's bent away from God, and it's sinful nature. So it's it's this complicated term. But in this instance, I think Paul is saying, don't put your confidence in yourself or in your standing in the world. Don't put your confidence in your morality and your accomplishments or even your brilliance. Because, in light of the Spirit of God, we see that all of these things are opposed to Him. We see how sin saturates all of these things under the surface. Don't put your confidence in your standing in the world, because we recognize that any standing in the world is still within a world that is fundamentally opposed to God. As Paul says elsewhere, the flesh is opposed to the Spirit. We don't put any confidence in ourselves or this world, we boast in Christ who brings the new age to us, who brings uh, the Spirit of God to us, who is making all things new. But if we're honest, I think we we find this command incredibly hard. We know what it is to have some sense of standing, some sense of uh, merit or accomplishment in the world in which we do have confidence. This is why we go to school. This is why we get degrees. This is why we pursue raises. This is uh, why we check how many people pressed like on our most recent Facebook status. We we know what it is to feel confident in our standing in the world. We know what it is to feel confident in our self-perceived goodness. And Paul, he knows this. This is why he says in verse four, though I myself have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's saying, if this is about your social clout, or if this is about some sort of um, spiritual or religious resume, uh, check mine out. I can outdo you all. Uh, To help illustrate this, I'm going to invite Tad to the stage. put a lot of thought into who I wanted to invite. Tad. Um, So I'm I'm going to give Tad um, a book for each of the marks that Paul describes. And and keep in mind, for each book that I give Tad, this is is a description of how Paul sees himself. This is a description of his self-understanding within the world. So the first thing he says, let's let's go with the uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Um, The first thing he says, circumcised on the eighth day. So, so in other words, uh, completely obedient to the law, you know, uh, to, to the letter, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, of the people of Israel. And, and, and this second mark is a statement that Paul wasn't married into Judaism. He wasn't um, you know, adopted in. He didn't convert. He was born into it, which set you apart as a Jew. Uh, the, the next mark, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, there's a lot of dispute about this one. In essence, there's this perception that the tribe of Benjamin um, had had special esteem for certain accomplishments. Uh, the next mark a Hebrew of Hebrews. Most likely it just means that even within Rome where, where the, the official language was Greek, uh, Paul spoke Hebrew. What's the next one? As to the law, a Pharisee. Jeremiah. Thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, as a Pharisee, the Pharisees were a group of pious Jews who uh, took fulfilling the law very seriously. If, if the law said, you know, don't stand on the edge of the cliff, um, Pharisees would say, well, don't stand three feet from the edge of the cliff. You know, uh, they, they wanted to make sure that they fulfilled the law in such a way that they might usher in the kingdom of God. They, they took their holiness very seriously. And, and Paul... Uh, I'm just dragging this out now for Tad's sake. Uh, Paul, though, as a Pharisee, they were respected in their society, they were esteemed. It was another notch in his social rank. Then he says, "As to zeal, yeah, a persecutor of the church. We know through the New Testament that Paul, um, when, when Christianity uh, began to rise was because of christ 's resurrection, that he persecuted the early church. He was a witness at the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, He he stood noddingly. He uh, he was even assigned the task to put Christians in jail, to seek them out. And Paul, he was zealous for his Judaism, because he saw Christianity as blaspheming the one true God, another notch in his social standing. And then, this is the most interesting one. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this is a little confusing, isn't it? Um, because uh, we know um, through other teachings in the New Testament that the law, yes, it was a good thing, but no one can fulfill the law. No one, uh, Paul even says elsewhere that the law was given to exacerbate sin, to show how sinful we really are. But Paul says, but under the law, I was blameless in regards to righteousness. Uh, what he is, he's not saying that he was perfect. He's not saying that he... He followed the law flawlessly. He's saying he followed the law blamelessly. He's saying, look, if I sinned, I went and offered the sacrifice. If someone revealed the sin, I confessed it and I offered the sacrifices. I did my diligence in fulfilling the law in such a way that Paul could not be accused of being lawless. You see, Paul, with these markers, these defined him as a person in their society. He would have been of the the best of the best of any Jew in Judaism. He would have had standing in society. And then, that's what makes verse 7 so powerful. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. All of this standing, all of this social clout, all of these identity markers, all of these things that define who he is and give him a sense of uh, prestige and respect in the world, Paul counts it as a loss. It's not about his impressive spiritual resume. So, Tad, you have these things that define you. What do you have to do if you're going to grab a hold of Jesus? What if I said, grab a hold of wipe, Jesus Christ? First, wipe the sweat out of my breath. Wipe? <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So, oh, oh. That is better It's good. Thank you, Tad. You got my seat. You see, I'm learning to count my commentaries as a loss. You know, not going to worry about them other than Mike's Greek, New Mexico. I'm sorry. We'll work it out later. Uh, Only though, only in comparison to Christ can Paul count these things as a loss. Because it means practically uh, that we have to lose whatever it is that we held on to that defines us. Whatever it is that we valued. Whatever it is that... Uh, may even have been good things in order to gain Jesus. Not once does Paul say that his Judaism was a bad thing. It was a good thing. But he counts it all as a loss in light of how Christ fulfilled it for him. Which means for Paul, he had to let go of the righteousness he thought he had under the law. He had to let go of the respect and honor he held within society. And the question is, though, what are the things that we hold on to that define us that we have to let go of, that we have to count as a loss? In our culture, I think the biggest one is our moralism, the sense that our performance, that our ability to do right, our our care for the poor, our desire to be good people, um, our self-perceived goodness as a result, we have to count that as a loss. Because it doesn't matter how good you are in your own eyes. Uh, Everyone in our society has to then let go um, and count as lost the you-can-earn-it mentality. Consumerism embeds this in us. We think, if I just do the right things, if if I'm just a good person, then God will owe me. And if there is a God, like if you're doubting that, you've surely said at some point, like if there's a God, surely he will recognize that I was a good person and he will reward me. This text says, no, we have to count any sense of uh, entitlement to God or any sense of accomplishment or self-goodness as a loss. These things don't count as righteousness before God. And this is the next one, I think, though, is one of the, the hardest ones, our intellectualism. Now, let me say very clearly, I'm not saying we throw our minds away. I'm talking about intellectual superiority over faith, this intellectual ego we can have towards things of faith. Uh, listen to this brilliant rewriting by an Australian scholar. Uh, his name is Michael Bird, And he takes this passage we are studying and he rewrites it um, through the lens of what it was like for him to leave a secular uh, intellectual culture and become a Christian. So, some have great confidence in skeptical scholarship, and I once did. Perhaps more than anyone else. If anyone thinks they are assured in their unbelief, I was more committed. Born of unbelieving parents, never baptized or dedicated on scholarly credentials, a PhD from a secular university. As to zeal, mocking the church. As to ideological righteousness, totally radicalized. But whatever intellectual superiority I thought I once had over Christians, I now count it as sheer ignorance. Indeed, I count everything in my former life as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing the historical Jesus who is also the risen Lord. For his sake, I have given up trying to be a hipster atheist. I consider that old chestnut pure filth. That must be an Australian thing. Uh, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a CV that will gain me tenure at an Ivy League school, but knowing that I've bound myself to Jesus, and where he is, there I shall be also. Michael Byrd knows what it w- the cost of abandoning his intellectual superiority. It doesn't mean he threw his mind away. He's still brilliant. But he sees that it's not an advantage over faith in Christ. Paul, when he says, I suffer the loss of all things, though, you have to understand this was significant. This wasn't just hypothetical for Paul. It wasn't like he had some faith locked away and he went on living life as it was. Paul lost his entire um, social circle. He would have lost respect among the Pharisees. He would have been seen as a blasphemy among his old friends. He would have lost friendships. He lost a permanent home. For all we can tell, from the point that he was saved, he never once had a permanent home from that point onwards. He lost consistency. He lost... um, Privilege—he lost doors being opened because he was trained as one of the greatest rabbis in the uh, Jewish nation at that time. He knew what it was to suffer in losing these things, in letting go of these things, in letting go of the marks that set him apart within the world. And I think we we get this uh, when we follow Jesus. It doesn't come without loss, and it doesn't come without suffering uh, for claiming that he is Lord over our lives. You don't even have to try now to, see, to find ridicule in our culture directed towards Christians. You'll be mocked. You will be called dumb. You will be called a caveman. Worse, people will accuse you of being bigoted on the wrong side of history and against the times. You're just ignorant. You will be scorned for your modesty. You'll be ridiculed and uh, called boring or a buzzkill or upright because you don't live in the same self-indulgent ways and and you will lose friends over this sometimes. Not because you want to, not because uh, you wanted to lose the friendship, but simply because the people uh, no longer have any respect for you because of your identification with Christ and what that means. You will lose reputation and status in the world's eyes. You will suffer loss. But look at what Paul says in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Rubbish in the Greek is skubala. It means crap or dung. Uh, And Paul, in light of the surpassing worth of Christ, he sees everything in his life before that moment as scubala, dung. Everything he once held dear, everything that defined him, even if it was a good thing, Paul sees it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. Even the suffering that comes with losing those things is nothing compared to what is gained in the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And This is where Paul gets really personal. My Lord. This is the only time in all of his writings that he says, Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is not just intellectual assent. This is not just believing the right things. This is a deeply personal and experiential encounter with the living Jesus. Because at the end of the day, simply thinking the right things isn't enough to suffer the loss of all things. But possessing Jesus, if he's my Jesus, is enough to count everything as rubbish and to leave it behind, even the good things. Because to be made Christ's own surpasses anything we leave behind. If Christ is our future, that means anything that lies ahead of us is always better than anything we could ever leave behind. Anything we pursue for his sake will always be better than anything we leave behind for his sake. But Why? Why is that true? What's so great about Jesus that that Paul would leave his religious elitism behind? What's so great about Jesus that Christians throughout the ages will abandon uh, comfort and entitlement and living for themselves and and pursue Christ alone? Paul says he counts it all as rubbish in order to gain Christ and continues in verse 9, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. So not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. Not the righteousness of my own. If you have a Bible, underline that. Not the accomplishments I can make, no matter how good I have been. It is nothing compared to the faithfulness of Jesus. It is nothing compared to the righteousness that comes from God. You see, Paul, he knew what it was to to seek blamelessness under the law. He knew what it was to seek his own righteousness under the law. And he thought, in some sense, that gave him standing before God. But what Jesus shows Paul is that God is the one that brings righteousness to Paul because of the faithfulness of Jesus, because of what Jesus accomplished, because Jesus never compromised the law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus was without sin. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And Jesus is lifted up and exalted by the Father. And it's Jesus' righteousness that comes from God to us. And Paul says, I will Throw away my own righteousness for that righteousness. And we receive it simply by faith. Not by our accomplishments, not by our performance, not by our brilliance, but by faith in what Jesus has accomplished for us. You might be a moral person. I'm not going to contest that. You might be an accomplished person. You might even be a brilliant person. But in light of Christ we see that those things can do nothing for us in our relationship to God. They can be used for God, but they will not set us right with God. Paul says, count your own righteousness. The things in which you place value, the things that you think give you some sort of standing before others and God, count those things as a loss, says Paul. Have no confidence in your flesh, because what Christ has accomplished is infinitely better. It's a surpassing worth. It's about uh, gains and losses. It's economic language. It's simple math. Uh, throw away the Canadian Tire money. You know, throw away the monopoly money, and gain true currency. You know, throw away the the the. The pop ring, you know, like the the fake diamond ring that you can eat. It's delicious. But, you know, throw it away and gain the flawless diamond. Because things that even seem good in comparison to Christ are are worthless. We throw them away to gain the surpassing worth of Christ. And Paul says we do this, in verse 9, in order that you might be found in Christ. Paul's pursuit is to be found in Christ. And and that leaves us asking, well, what does that look like? What What does a life found in Christ look like? Look at verses 10 through 11. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, he knows losing things. Uh, Leaving it behind, it's not easy, it's hard, and it entails suffering. But He also sees that this is what it means to be found in Christ. Because Jesus suffered the loss of all things. Because Jesus, although he he was in the form of God, um, emptied himself. Becoming in the form of a man, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus emptied himself and suffered the loss of all things. But it wasn't just for the sake of death. It was for the sake of resurrection. Jesus paved the way for us. So we could know that out of death can come life. And Paul knows that whatever suffering comes our way. Whatever little deaths we have to die every day. That we can discover the power of resurrection. And that life comes bursting forth. Where we'd least expect to find it. In suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus. In in picking up our cross and dying to our self-desires and our selfishness and and aligning our lives in a way that looks more like the obedience of Jesus. That we can encounter the power of resurrection in this and we have the hope of ultimately attaining the resurrection of the dead. Again, there's always more waiting for us than anything we ever leave behind. Paul gets this. Which brings us to our, our last point. The God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the thesis of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. And in between now and then, Paul says, Press on, because resurrection awaits us. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Which we all say, thank you, Paul. The Christian life is not about attaining perfection within ourselves. It's about attaining Christ. Paul says, I press on to make being found in him my own. I press on that my life might look more like his. To be found in Christ, but he does it. And this is what I love about his motivator. Because Christ has made me his own. You don't press on because somehow that will assure your eternal trajectory. You press on because you're assured of your eternal trajectory. And you know that you are pressing on to the one thing that you want to inherit. The one thing that you know your soul desperately needs. And you're pressing on to the one who is already pressed on towards you. To the one who emptied himself for you. To the one who died for you. To the one whose graces you cannot outrun. You are pressing on towards him. We don't have anything to prove in our pressing on. We just have a person we want to gain in presence. Look at verses 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, you know, forgetting the accomplishments, forgetting my self-righteousness, forgetting the social standing I had, forgetting the comfort I had, forgetting everything I had. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal of the, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We gain Christ. We press on to attain him. Straining forward, leaving what lies behind, looking forward to that day where we belong to him, forgetting everything in the periphery and pressing on, leaving behind anything that impedes us, looking out for things that might distract us from him. We press on towards him. This means we have to give things up, and that is not easy. Uh, Julia, I got her permission to use this, Uh, when, she, when we moved to Vancouver, Julia, you know, pressing on sometimes entails leaving behind good things. Paul left behind good things. Julia had to leave behind her family, you know, 3,500 miles. Uh, she had to leave behind a, a career that was finally taking off. We, she had to leave behind a church where she was loved and knowing. She had to leave behind friendships that she had never uh, had, like that sort of quality of friendship before in her life. And she moved here because... She wanted to follow Jesus no matter what he asked. She had to leave behind some good things. She has to be in a city raising a little child without her mom nearby. But she presses on the prize of Jesus. And she would say, it's not because I'm so great. It's because I know that what I gain in Christ will outweigh anything that I leave behind. She presses on. And I talk to so many of you. You know what this is like to follow Jesus. You have to leave the home. You know, and downsize, or you, you have to leave the career and go into a different career that's more in line with what you think God is leading you to do. You have to move across nations, but you do it because Christ is worth it. He's the gain. Anything that you lose is nothing in comparison. But sometimes, uh, pressing on means we leave behind the things we already know we're supposed to leave behind. Uh, for me, that, that meant when I became a Christian and started figuring it out, like breaking off an engagement and moving out of living with my girlfriend. And that wasn't easy, but I knew what Christ was asking me to do, and I knew that no matter how hard that may have been, gaining him was better and worth it. And many of you know this tension that God is calling you to give up something that you don't want to give up, and it looks scary, and you can't imagine your life without it, but you know that pressing on to Jesus means leaving this thing behind. I want you to be assured that you can know that gaining him is uh, surpassing worth that will make this look like rubbish. But sometimes, and this is the harder stuff, I think, it's just the petty, everyday, simple things where we feel like Jesus is calling us to press on towards him. Like, do not download music and movies on your computer. It's legal. Press on. Be more like Christ. Don't steal. You know. Uh, press on. Stop going to food to comfort yourself. Go to Jesus. Press on. Stop leading uh, girls or guys on so that you can use them. Press on. Stop drinking in excess. Press on. Uh, stop driving like a maniac. Seriously, as a pedestrian, I fear for my life in this city. You know, press on. Drive more like Jesus. <laughs> press on. Stop spending all of your money on yourself. Press on. Like, Get out of the debt that is weighing you down. Press on. Use your resources for other people. Whatever it is, the everyday stuff matters um, infinitely more often than the one-off, big-time deals that we think will change our lives. No, it is the everyday little steps of obedience that will shape our faith in Christ. And in all these little things, it is challenging and it is hard, but what we gain, the surpassing worth of Christ, makes these things look like rubbish. But, and I, I bet you already have a list running in your mind, what, what I have to press on towards and what I, that might in, mean leaving behind. It's only worth suffering the loss of these things if you've caught a glimpse of the surpassing worth of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're you're skeptical towards Christianity or maybe you're even antagonistic towards Christianity, the only way this life that I'm describing will ever make sense to you is if you catch a glimpse of the surpassing worth of Jesus. Because if you don't, it'll never be worth the cost to follow him. It's too much. Because if if this is the only life you have, if between your birth and your death, like that is it, it is a huge gamble to uh, radically sacrifice for the sake of gaining Christ if you you don't know what you're gaining. But if you catch a glimpse of Christ, you're not just capturing a glimpse of who God is. You're capturing a glimpse of who we uh, can be like. You're capturing a glimpse of what eternal life isn't just like in its length, but in its quality. A life that starts here and now, not just here and after. You have to press on. You know, Paul, he's calling the the church to press on, but I, I think if you're trying to figure out if Jesus is really who he said he is, you need to press on too. Because it's easy to ask that question, but never follow up by trying to find an answer. It's easy to use the questions as a defense mechanism. So I'd encourage you, press on, figure out if Jesus really is who he said he is, because if he is, it changes everything, and it's worth suffering the loss of all things. For those of you here, though, follow Jesus and there's ongoing struggle, uh, there's pain, it's It's hard, there's confusion, there's disappointment, or there's regret, or there's sin that clings to you, or there's a hole that just can't seem to be filled. I want to encourage you to press on. Because we don't press on perfectly. We might be running in tattered shoes. We might be running with weak ankles. We might have to sit down along the way and just keep our eyes fixed on the prize. But I want to encourage you to press on. Because you can press on because Christ is, has made you his own. It's his spirit that works within you. It's his desire that you might attain him, that you might receive the resurrection of the dead, that your life might look different here and now. So press on. Because Jesus is all you need. and, And when you gain him, you gain everything. You gain the Lord of the universe who's not just a theoretical Lord. He is your Lord. He's my Lord. He's our Lord.